I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak, and for this particular episode, this is the Hanover House, which we've designed it to be a little bit more informal uh, opportunity to bring in other brothers uh, and bring in other experts to think through different topics that we've talked about on the podcast previously or we think that are uh, relevant to our subject areas. We like to talk about analytic theology, Baptist theology, confessional theology, and we like to do it in a way that promotes certain virtues such as uh, charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And one recent book that has come out uh, from Dr. Christian Miller on honesty, I think made for just a tremendous uh, tremendous subject matter uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, I think just overall the past couple of years, I think we've seen an erosion of trust, an erosion of who is honest, what really counts as honest. I mean, I think if you just look, you know, if I, if I asked anybody on the street, probably walking down the road, do you trust the media, let's say, or do you trust uh, scientists? Do you trust the CDC? Whatever it is, there's a lot of people who have a lot of distrust and think that people are dishonest for all sorts of reasons, wherever you're at across the political spectrum, whether wherever you're at across the theological spectrum, whatever, people have a lot of distrust. They feel like people are being dishonest. And I think recently in our, you know, I'm a Southern Baptist, and I think most, uh, I think Jake is a Southern, no, you're not Southern Baptist, Jake. I think Cody's at a Southern Baptist church. Alex is. Jason, I don't know if you are. Um, but in that context, there's been a lot of talk about honesty uh, from the pulpit, uh, what counts as honesty, what doesn't count as honesty. So I just, I'm just thinking in general, this is a great opportunity to talk about a really important topic that, Christian, you mentioned in your work. There's just no—people aren't talking, researching, thinking about honesty. I don't know why that is, uh, and maybe you can tell us why you think that is to come up with an answer. But before we do that, um, just to, to remind our listeners who Christian is and why— He's really smart and knows what he's talking about. Uh, he is the A.C. Reed Professor of Philosophy at Wake Forest University, and he's done some really, 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 really neat stuff with, I think, the Templeton. Has Templeton funded a lot of the cool stuff you're doing? So the Character Project, you're doing an Honesty Project right now, right? Uh, so awesome research stuff that they, they're doing over there, uh, and he's heading up a lot of that, and he's got some really, really helpful publications. So the book we're talking about now uh, for this one in particular is called Honesty, the Philosophy and Psychology of a Neglected Virtue. It's uh, from Oxford University Press, but it's actually pretty affordable. So I I commend you to go go buy a copy of it because I think it's it's great. I've read it myself. I think it's wonderful. He's got some other books recently, Moral Psychology, and that's only 75 pages. Uh, That is from Cambridge University Press. Tremendous book. I mean that that's something that a lot of people can digest. Seventy five pages, not a, not a hard not a hard sell. The character gap. We talked to him about that on a previous episode. That's like trade level book where people can understand that it's not just academics. Uh, another great book from Oxford University Press that's affordable. P- I mean, there's paperback version. I mean, off the top of my head, I'm guessing it's probably like twenty bucks. Not not hard. Not a hard sell. It's not the typical one hundred fifty dollar Oxford book. So I commend his resources to you. He's got a website. You can learn more about him, like how he went and rescued baby sea turtles and all sorts of cool stuff. So Christian's awesome. Uh, You should get to know him, find out his stuff. Now, I do want to talk about the subject at hand, which is honesty. Uh, And 
I guess I need to remind you guys that are listening. We've got two new guests here as well. Jason Allagood and, well, Alex Deprem has been on the show before. But Jason, you're a pastor in, in Peoria, Illinois, uh, just so people know. Cody's here. Cody Float. You guys know him if you listen. Uh, down in Alabama, Mississippi. I forget every time. They <laughs> seem like the same to me. Jake Stone, who is a recent convert to Louisville, Kentucky. And then Alex is also in Winston-Salem, who's a pastor. So that out of the way, let's talk. Um, I, I'm not, uh, not the guy to give you the 15 minute banter intro. I want to talk about the topic. I think it's fun. So honesty, Christian, you've got this book, you work through the first, I don't know, 30, 40 plus pages trying to hammer out what does honesty actually mean? So could you just give me, maybe you give me a couple various ways to understand honesty, maybe that have been understood previously or currently are popular ways to understand it. And then tell me, how do you think honesty should be defined and understood? Great. Thank you so much. So first of all, Jordan, thanks for having me back. Uh, I know after the last time around, you'd never want to talk to me again. So I'm really glad to see you all <laughs> once more. And I'm really thrilled to talk about this new topic. This is a shift in my research from the general discussion of character to a more focused discussion of a particular character trait. And you're right to say that it's, it's really been neglected and in a couple of different ways. It's been neglected in society, as you framed it nicely, that there needs to be a lot more honesty in society, but it's also been neglected in the academic discussion of honesty. So in philosophy, for example, there's almost nothing written on the topic of honesty in the last 50 years. So I wanted to try and enter this space and make some kind of contribution to get people paying attention to it more, providing their own theories. Even if mine isn't any good, they can tell me why mine is wrong and advance their own, and hopefully we can make some progress towards the truth. So as far as contrasting or setting up alternative theories, I can't really do much because as we just said, there's not much out there to, by way of contrast. There's Historically, it's true that, say, Aristotle talked about a kind of honesty, but it had to do with how you presented yourself to other people. And that's the extent of, to which he was focused on that topic. It's a very, very narrow uh, uh, focus. And I think honesty covers much more ground than that. Uh, so what I do in, in the book is basically not bother with past views. I just kind of start from scratch and see where I can go with my, my own theory. And a couple of preliminary points I think are good to keep in mind. First, that I'm not just talking about honest behavior. So there's you know telling the truth to someone at the party, or there's not cheating on your taxes in 2021. Uh, those are particular instances of behavior which we would call honest. And they are important, but I'm thinking about something else. I'm talking about the virtue of honesty which is a character trait. And it does a lot more work than just lead you to not cheat on your taxes in 2021. So to expand a little bit more, uh, one component of, of the virtue of honesty certainly has to do with behavior, but it needs to be cross-situationally consistent and stable behavior over time. So that, what does that mean? That's a lot of jargon. Um, that means that an honest person is expected to display the virtue of honesty in their behavior across a variety of different situations, the party, the office, at home, at, at work, etc., and expected to do that stably over time. So not just on one given day or one given week, but from week to week to month to month to year to year. So they expect a certain kind of pattern of behavior of an honest person. But then there's more to it too. There's uh, the internal, the underlying character 
that is responsible for the behavior. A honest person has honest thoughts and also honest motivations. So they can't be doing these honest actions just for any old reason, on my view at least. If the motivation, for instance, is purely self-interested, they're doing it, say, in order to make a good impression on others or to not get fired from their job um, or uh, to not get punished and have to go to jail. Those are, you know, those are serious reasons, but they're not virtuous reasons. They're not the kind of reasons you would expect of a virtuous person because they're purely self-centered. Um, a honest person has motivation, which is focused on something larger than themselves, whether that's the good of another person, whether that's doing the right thing, whether that's God's commands, it can't just be purely egoistic. So to wrap this up, and then I'll say one more thing, and, I'll, and I promise I'll stop. Um, to summarize what I just said, there are multiple components to the virtue of honesty. There's a behavioral component, there's a cognitive or thinking component, and then there's a motivational component. And collectively, that makes up the virtue. Now, all that still doesn't take us too far. Um, that's just kind of the scratching the surface. We can go deeper in a lot of different directions, however you like. Uh, one way we could go deeper is to say, well, uh, can you give us a more precise account of that motivation? What counts as that virtuous motivation? How do we know whether we are being uh, honestly motivated or not? Another uh, way to go deeper is to say, well, what about that honest behavior? Uh, what is the definition of that? When do we know when we see honest behavior and when do we not? And I'll just give you a quick further thought on that last question, which is, um, on my view, the heart of honest behavior is to not intentionally distort the facts as a person sees them. So let me say it again. Uh, the heart of honest behavior is to not intentionally, so not on purpose, distort the facts as the person happens to see them. So if I, uh, if you know, if I'm a, if I'm in school, and I say to my teacher, I my dog ate my homework, and my dog didn't eat my homework. I'm intentionally distorting the facts as I see them to the teacher and the teacher adopts a false belief. If she, if she trusts me, um, she adopts a false belief uh, because I was being dishonest to her. Um, if I happen to believe that the earth is flat and I say to you, the earth is flat, I'm saying something false, but at the same time, I'm not being dishonest. Um, that's something I really believe. I'm not intentionally distorting the facts as I see them from my own perspective. So honesty becomes person relative in that sense. It's, are you accurately representing the facts as you understand them to be to others? Or in your communication, whether verbal or not, are you distorting the facts in a way that does not represent how you actually think they are? If you're distorting them, then you're failing to be honest. And I think I'll stop with that. That's helpful. Uh, do any of you guys have any thoughts or follow-up questions immediately on that? Uh, just definition questions, concerns, or, or launching points? I don't know. Alex, you look like the wheels are turning in your head, so I don't know if you've got something. Yeah, they are. Uh, Christian, this is the first time we've met, brother, and glad for the opportunity to, to be on this podcast with you. And um, uh, sad this is the first time we're meeting because we're in the same town. So we got to find a way to, to link yeah, up. Yeah, we got to fix that. <laughs> yeah. Sure. So, so just a follow up question that that was in my mind. Um, uh, 
I appreciate what you're saying that that honesty is um, uh, or dishonesty, I should say, is a matter of intentionally distorting the facts. Someone could even actually convey something that is factually false while while being in every way honest about their understanding of the situation or the facts or whatever the case may be. Sometimes the, the, the language, though, of intellectual honesty or intellectual dishonesty is, is used. And at least when I hear that language used, I, I hear people either commending or indicting someone's uh, intellectual process by which they're developing their perspectives and their opinions and their conclusions. So uh, you might have someone who... Uh, has sincerely embraced some kind of really ridiculous conspiracy theory. I'm not going to name one in particular, but but suppose someone's embraced just some really wild, harebrained thing. Um, is it appropriate to say, even though they may sincerely in their minds be persuaded of this crazy conspiracy theory that is so transparently not factual, is it legitimate to employ the language of honesty, dishonesty to indict uh, the intellectual process by which they have arrived at that conclusion. Does my question make sense? Would it help if I restated it another way? You know. oh, it makes, makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, just quick, let, let me probe your intuitions. What do you, what's your intuitive re reaction to your own question? Well, it's just, uh, I appreciate you putting it back on me. Uh, uh, I would, I would, my intuitions would tell me that the language of intellectual honesty, dishonesty is appropriate because... Um, and again, I'm spitballing here. I genuinely am putting the question to you, but I would think that there can be uh, volitional decisions made on the front end or throughout the intellectual process that deliberately excludes information or certain facts or denies certain informations or certain facts in a way that personally, in my particular moral framework, I would find morally wrong or morally culpable. And I wouldn't have a problem with saying that's a compromise in honesty, uh, or that's a function of dishonesty, not permitting all the full facts to come to the equation, potentially violating the laws of logic in the process. I've tended to see that as, as, as okay to think about in the larger umbrella category or framework of honesty, dishonesty. But I'm open, I'm open, definitely open to, to correction on that and thinking there might be better language that could be used to describe no, what I'm saying. No, no, that's really, really well stated. Uh, I first want to say I was focused mainly on moral honesty. If you think there's a difference between moral virtues and intellectual virtues, or sometimes called epistemic virtues, uh, that I was focused on the moral side, which has to do more with explicit behavior in the world and how we interact with other people, um, rather than our kind of cognitive thought processes. But it would be a shame if my view didn't have like a, an extrapolation or carryover to the intellectual case. And so I, I think it does. And I think I want to say, I just want to agree with you. Um, I'm fine with using that language in the intellectual case if the person is intentionally distorting the facts to themselves. Um, so, you know, th th this would also extend to cases of self-deception as well. So I think self-deception would be a failure of honesty, too. Mm -hmm. um, that's not what you were bringing up, but, I, but it has a natural uh, resonance with what you were saying. Um, but yes, in an intellectual investigation, if the person on purpose misrepresents or distorts certain facts that they're presented with, that they encounter, in order to achieve some kind of uh, goal that they have in mind, then that would count as a dishonest mode of inquiry or investigation, on yes. my view. And I think that's, that also maps onto 
ordinary discourse. I don't think that's changing how we think. I think that's in line with what people would normally say. So, so the category of honesty you're using, Christian, would would permit the the whole idea of self deception, uh, the conflict of motivations internally, uh, things things of that nature. It would apply to it, uh, but it would re- it would say that people who are self deceived are dishonest. Um, so it's yeah, going to say, yeah, yeah, it, it applies as well, it, which also I think is intuitive. You know, it's not honestly, it's not just a matter of how you behave towards other people. It's also how you behave towards yourself. Are you honest with yourself? We, that's a common you know, le- expression we use. Are you honest with yourself or not? And I want to be able to capture that too. Yeah, yeah well, so that's a helpful clarification. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, great question. That, yeah, great question, Alex. I mean, uh, Christian, I don't know, with, with all your empirical research that you guys and your team have done, and just from me looking at the world from my own vantage point, it seems like there has been a rise in beliefs in all sorts of things like conspiracy theories, et cetera. Is that something you've, and I think I saw you even recently talking about wanting to research conspiracy theories. Do you feel like there's been a rise in des- desires to, to, to believe in sorts of things like that? Um, that this would be a really tricky question. Um, I'm not really an expert enough to say to do the historical analysis. Uh, the stuff I've been reading recently suggests that conspiracy theories have been around for a long time. And for example, were widely held in the first half of the 20th century. Um, conspiracy theories, for example, having to do with the nefarious impact of big business or, you know, these are terrible theories, but, you know, uh, nefarious impact of, of, uh, Jew- a Jewish um, controlling group and so forth. Um, this, this, the, in, the, in the 30s and 40s, a very high percentage of people thought that um, uh, the Jews were controlling parts of the economy or politics in problematic ways. So, you know, the terrible theories, uh, but they've been around for a long time. And I, I think we have to be very careful to say that, you know, just recently, it's a lot worse than it used to be. I think they've been around quite extensively for a long time. I think I would ask one question, kind of discussing the the conspiracy issues and this understanding of the virtue of honesty. Christian, what do you see maybe the connection with, or do you see a connection with the loss of honesty as a virtue in institutions? That many institutions in our age, as we started off, Jordan said, we've lost, they've lost credibility and would you say there's a correlation where when you're losing um, respect for institutions and think they're being honest with you, that that opens the door for more of the conspiratorial mindsets and believing things because we want to believe something is true. And if we can't trust these institutions, but we find some people around us who may agree with us on something, then we will latch on to that without any kind of rigorous process of distilling truth from lies. Yeah, I I have to say I've not thought about it that in that way before, so I probably don't have very worked out views. Um, it does, so I, I'm inclined to just start at the individual level and then map on to the institutional level. So, you know, why is honesty valuable? There are a number of reasons why it's valuable, but one is that it fosters trust. Um, when you you know erode honesty, you erode trust and in individuals. So, you know, uh, what would that look like very concretely? Well, if you lie to your best friend, that undermines trust with your best friend. If you cheat on your wife, that undermines trust in the marriage. Um, if you 
uh, plagiarize something for a professor that underlines, uh, undermines the professor's trust in you as a student. So those points seem to be pretty clear. And then you just extrapolate to the institutional level. Well, if we're entitled to talk about character traits implying to institutions, then it seems like the same lessons would follow. Um, if an institution does something that undermines or is clearly dishonest, it's going to undermine inst trust in that institution, which is going to lead people to look elsewhere for sources of information that they might have otherwise gotten from that institution in the first place, whether that's the you know traditional media, uh, whether that's a uh, scientific uh, body of thought, um, whether that's the government, wh whatever those institutions might be. Uh, all that presupposes that it makes sense to ascribe character traits to institutions in the first place. Uh, that's a very abstract philosophical question, which we don't have to get into now. Um, but, you know, it is, it is worth just noting that it's not obvious that a institution, which is not a person in a literal sense, could have a character trait, which looks like it's only ascribable to persons. Um, and that, you know, which, which involves thoughts and feelings and actions. Um, when in a, you know, again, in a, in a clear sense, that institution isn't the person who can think, feel and act. Um, but that's, that's the philosopher in me coming out now. Uh, we just certainly don't have to pursue that, that here. So Christian, one thing that I wanted to pick your brain on is how do we fit things like white lies into your account of honesty? Because uh, it seems like if I reliably distort the facts via telling white lies, does that make me a dishonest person? Uh, I mean, I think of just an obvious example. I think a lot of people tell their children that Santa Claus exists. Does that make me a dishonest person? I mean, I, I've always felt a little tension there personally. Uh, but then I found myself a couple of weeks ago concocting this story for my two-year-old who wanted more chocolate milk that we were out so he had to call the cows to make some and bring it in the morning. And now he wants to call the cows every day. So <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> am, am I becoming a dishonest person by perpetuating this story? So where do, where do white lies fit Ooh. into your account? Jordan, can I, can I also add just a little PS on yeah. that question? I think it's a great question. There are also other forms of uh, trying to deliberately distort the facts that I don't tend to think of as negative from a moral standpoint. Like, for example, trickery and warfare uh, trying to uh, hide information or what's the word, the technical term, like cryptographic kind of stuff where you're, you're, you encrypt uh, information to try to deceive or to mislead your opponent or even something. I know this is trivial and trite and probably a, the kind of question you just love getting, Dr. Miller, but, uh, you know, like play action in football, you know, you got to pretend like you're running the ball, but really you're passing the ball. You know, there's all kinds of distorting of information that's done in certain arenas um, and maybe it is actually, you know, the, the, the fiction you might play with your child or something like that, or the trickery and warfare, you are deliberately distorting the facts for a certain outcome. But I just wanted to add that into the equation as well, Jordan, uh, to thread that a little further. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, really good. Yeah. It's a, a, lot, a lot of cases on the table now. Uh, we want to go slowly. I think we want to cut, cut them up and carve them up in certain ways and say certain things about some of them and other things about others. Um, what I want to say is that first we need to know whether it's a factual environment or not, um, whether it's an environment in which we are going to assume that we're having a factual discourse about the matter, or whether it's a fi more fictional environment or an environment in which we suspend factual discourse. 
So if we're playing a poker game, well, then it's, I would not want to say that the person's being dishonest when they bluff. Um, because it's not a factual environment. We suspend the, the norms here of factual discourse when we're playing a poker game. Same thing if we go to the theater and someone says, you know, I am, uh, you know, uh, Cleopatra. Well, we don't think that person's lying because, you know, technically thinking she's not Cleopatra. Well, we're suspending certain norms of factual discourse. So I would want to do that with Jordan's case too, with the chocolate milk. Um, that's, you know, we're clearly entering into an imaginary world here a pretend and fictional uh, creativity, and and that's that's no problem at all. Um, I want I would want to say. Now that doesn't cover all the cases. So, what about a white lie case where it's clear we are in a fa factual discourse? You know, how's the dress look? How's the tie look? How's how is the dessert? Um, you know, how how did my latest article sound to you? Well, I get the last one, you know, people say, oh, but your, your article is great. I don't think they're always telling me the truth. They just be nice to me. Um, there's those cases. We'll call them white lies on, as understood to be relatively minor or trivial cases of distorting the facts in a factual environment. And then the last category of cases are the, the ones that Alex brought up where it, it's kind of very serious matters, uh, say, of, of warfare, where the outcome of a battle might be determined on whether you tell the truth or not. There's a really um, famous example of this, which is in the history of philosophy, which is the uh, Nazi at the door example, which is a play on Immanuel Kant's axe murder example. So let's come to that in a second. Um, for the white lie cases, I do think that those, if you say um, the dessert tasted great when actually you thought it was awful, but you don't want to hurt the other person's feelings, you're being dishonest. Um, my account straightforwardly uh, implies that. You're intentionally distorting the facts as you see them in your communication with the other person. It doesn't follow that that's automatically wrong, though. So there's difference between being dishonest and being wrong. Uh, I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, shift now to the Nazi at the door case. And this will apply to the military ones that you gave to, Alex. Um, so in the Nazi at the door example... Uh, you're hiding Jews in the basement during World War II. The Nazis are doing a routine patrol of the neighborhood. They're just going door to door asking, do you know where any Jews are? They come to your door. They say, do you know where any Jews are? You definitely know where some Jews are because you're hiding them in the basement. So here you have a choice. You could either tell the truth, in which case that Jewish family is going to be killed and you may be as well. Or you can lie and say, I don't know where any Jews are, in which case the Nazi will go to the next house and... That'll be it for the day. Uh, in this case, if you say, I don't know where any Jews are, it looks like you're lying, you're being dishonest, but that doesn't follow that you're doing anything wrong. So now I, I'll use this example to illustrate this point that I'm making between the distinction between being dishonest and being wrong. Um, what the point is, is that wrongness is all things considered. Uh, it, with respect to being dishonest, you're doing something wrong, but there are other considerations in play. For example, there are considerations of compassion. So compassion is also relevant to this situation because, well, the good of the Jewish family is at stake. And their well-being, it looks like, is more important than whether you tell the truth to the Nazi at the door. So all things considered, it could be morally okay or even morally obligatory to lie to the Nazi. 
even though it's also dishonest. So you can have dishonesty combined with something being morally required at the same time, which might seem puzzling, but I think, you know, the way I unpacked it hopefully makes it seem a little bit more, make more sense. Um, now just take that analysis and just go right back to the white lie case. Um, in the white lie case, if you think some white lies are okay, it would just be the same story. It would be, okay, yes, this is dishonest, but also you're being compassionate towards your spouse or towards your child, and the compassion outweighs the honesty or the dishonesty as it happens, right? And so all things considered, it could be dishonest, but not wrong to say the dessert tasted good or the article was a good even though you don't think so. So I have a question in line with that, Christian. Great to meet you, by the way. Likewise. Um, thanks for the book. I'm I'm working my way through it. I really enjoyed it so far. Um, be honest. So it, it, I'm serious. <laughs> I'm being honest. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Um, uh, the, the topic lends itself to that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, these examples that you're giving here are examples that lead – to a a virtuous end, typically for someone else. Um, My question is maybe one related to causality in regard to the person who's making that choice. Um, You know, and again, this is maybe more along the lines of thinking about the moral underpinnings of some of these things, but does, do you see that, or in your research, do you see that leading to permissibility then in other areas. In other words, can someone become complacent? So because I lied and, and there's a moral outcome here that is good, that virtue, you know, is not in question. Um, but is it easier for me when it's then advantageous for me later to do that? In other words, how does this, and, and this maybe gets a little bit into the theology, uh, sort of pastoral for a guy like me, how does this form, deform, or reform the conscience perhaps? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, and that's an empirical question. And it, you know, it's probably hard to pronounce from the armchair. It's probably going to be a matter of, well, it depends on the individual. Uh, it's going to vary. It's individual difference variable, the way psychologists would put it. Um, it's going to change from person to person. So let me, um, let me backtrack with first a story about Kant, and then I'll address the, the point directly. Uh, so Kant, this this looks like it might have nothing to do with it, but you'll see the connection. Uh, Kant thought that animals had no moral status, uh, but he also thought that it was wrong to torture or harm animals, because if you do that enough times, it could make you more disposed to harm fellow persons, fellow human beings. Uh, so you wouldn't be doing anything really wrong to the animal, but you would be hurting your character, damaging your character in person in the process, which could lend to bad results later on with respect to other persons. Uh, So if you get into the habit of lying a lot and then justifying it in terms of, well, it's for the greater good, or, you know, I I brought about a greater outcome in the long run, uh, that could have that similar effect. It could make you, um, as you said, complacent in your moral character such that well, after a while, you just kind of lie habitually. You don't really check to see whether it's going to be a lie that is for the greater good. It's just a lie. Um, but I think that really depends on the individual. Uh, I, I would suspect there are some people who would be quite scrupulous about this. And they say, look, 
I don't like lying at all. And I only do it in these cases because I realize that there's so much more at stake than just whether I tell the truth or not. Uh, others, you know, might be more lax about it. There's a um, last thought here. There's a, a, a well-established psychological phenomenon, though, called moral licensing. And the idea there is that uh, if you do a right thing, and especially if it's a more, a more challenging task, then we often kind of give ourselves permission to be lax the next time we're in a morally challenging situation. So I stepped up to the plate, I did the right thing. And then, you know, at a couple hours later, well, I don't really do as well as I could have then. Um, so that is actually uh, an empirically verified phenomenon called moral licensing. Cool. So Christian, another thing that at least came to my mind as I'm thinking about being dishonest or honest, or what, whatever that looks like, um, how much do you think of a potential negative or maybe positive impact does my dishonesty or my honesty really have on my social relationships? So whether that's me as, you know, say I'm a businessman or say I'm a professor or I'm a pastor or, you know, I'm just a politician. I mean, on your account, it seems like I, I, I can become dishonest, but still have some sort of trust with people. Maybe I, maybe I'm dishonest in my home life, but I'm not dishonest as a lawyer, does that then still erode my trust as a lawyer? Um, questions like that. So I'm just trying to, to capture like what, what happens with honesty and dishonesty and my social relationships and the ability to have that trust. Yeah, that, that's, that's challenging. That's a really tough question. Um, it, it's also, I, I'm afraid to say, to give you the kind of Weasley answer, uh, it's going to vary case by case. Uh, you it depends on how good you are at masking the dishonesty and compartmentalizing it. Uh, so let me back up one step first. So there's an there, the empirical questions, which I hope we'll get into about, well, just how honest are people in general? Uh, to what extent are people honest? Or what extent people are dishonest? Or to what extent are people are somewhere in the middle, kind of a mixed bag? So w for now, let's bracket that. Let's just take someone who we'll say is more on the dishonest spectrum. They're closer to dishonesty than they are to honesty. Well, what kind of impact, then you raise the question, what kind of impact does that have on their relationships with others and their level of trust that they can foster? It, it's hard to say because it depends on how clever and careful the person is. So that and, and what kind of uh, dishonesty they practice. So let me make that a little bit more concrete. Um, if they can compartmentalize it to one area of their life, say, in their private home life, then it might have very little impact upon how much they're trusted in society. Uh, if it is not just something in their private home life, but impacts others, it depends on how good they can mask what they're doing from others. So if they're having an affair, that's a form of dishonesty, but they're doing it very quietly and covertly with just one person over the course of years, it may not be discovered and may not in any obvious way damage the marriage that's already in place. If they're cheating on their taxes year after year after year, but to a small degree, and the IRS doesn't catch it, it may not erode their trust with, say, their friends and neighbors. Uh, 
So it, it's hard to give you a blanket answer here because it's so contextually dependent upon the details of the situation. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. Anybody have any thoughts, questions? Alex, you have something? Jake, Cody? Cody, you haven't said anything. Do you have questions, thoughts? Yeah, one question that I've kind of had circling in my mind is, as we've been discussing this, is kind of how this, I guess, definition of honesty would kind of map onto current, just like the ideological terrain. Right. So we have a lot of ideas, you know, kind of even just like rumbling around um, such as like questions on gender. Right. Like, what does it mean to be gendered? Is my gender malleable? Right. Is it related to sexuality? So like in kind of those hot button topics in our culture, like are there when approaching questions like that? and using this definition of honesty, are there certain kind of like universals that you have to accept in order to utilize this definition and then kind of like taking it to questions like gender with somebody who says, for instance, that um, like, I don't believe gender is tied to sexuality in any way, shape or form. It's malleable. I can change it. Um, this and the other. Um, and your definition would kind of those cases, like we'd mentioned before, in their own understanding of like truth and reality, they would be honest as to who they believe themselves to be, what they believe to be true about gender, but they could be wrong in regards to like the universal um, that's at play. So um, yeah. So like, kind of like, do you have to affirm certain universals in order to like utilize your definition properly? No, you don't. That's, that's great. Great further clarification of that. Um, which may make some people uncomfortable, uh, but uh, no, you don't. Um, let's. Let, I'm not going to touch the gender issue. That's that's way too <laughs> explosive. Um, but uh, let's take uh, a different example. Um, let's take let's take two examples. One a relatively mundane example. And I'll I'll give you another co- controversial one. Um, so the mundane example is this: whether the Earth is flat or not. Um, so there is a flatter society today. There are people who genuinely believe this, who have done a lot of research from their perspective. They've, you know, investigated things, um, worked hard to discover the truth. And they, you know, if you have a conversation with them and and you ask them, what is the shape of the earth? They'll say the earth is flat. And they ask me, what is the shape of the earth? And I say the earth is round. Uh, Well, in that case, there is an objective truth. And by the way, the objective truth is the earth is round, but let's, let's leave that aside. Um, There's objective truth. But I think it's a mistake to accuse that person of being dishonest. Um, if they are sincerely sincere in their belief and they've investigated it with integrity, um, then I have no problem with saying that they are giving me an honest answer when they say that the earth is flat. Um, in fact, if they said to me, the earth is round, even though that's not their belief, they would be dishonest. They're saying something true, the earth is round, but they're being dishonest in the process. Here's another example. So I will give you, I won't stay away from controversy entirely. So take election deniers. Uh, So, you know, we all know people and maybe some, I don't know, maybe some of the listeners. um, I have, I have, you know, friends who I know of um, who say that the election was compromised, um, that uh, there was fraud involved and that Donald Trump genuinely won the election. Uh, I'm not going to get into that debate, only to say that, 
somewhat there is an objective truth about this. Either he did or he didn't. And someone could hold that view, have done a lot of research, and you know, come to the conclusion after their research uh, investigation that the, the election was a fraud. My view would, would say that that person does not have to be dishonest. That could be an honestly held view. Uh, so yeah, there, there you go. Now, if that's, does that make things too relative um, or too subjective? I don't think so. Um, I'm not in any way compromising objective truth. I, I, I personally definitely believe in objective truth, scientific truth, moral truth, religious truth, um, all down the line. Uh, but I think when it comes to something like honesty, our, our ordinary intuitions track what people are doing with the facts as they see them, not with the facts as they actually are. So, uh, honesty, and, and again, I've read some of the books, so I, I pick up on this. Honesty doesn't necessarily correlate with reality or, or truth because it's based on the, the person who's perceiving what they believe they're, they're being honest about it, even if it's not reality. Correct. Uh, again, this may, this may go into areas of fiction when we're talking with our children and things like that, but it, but it could also be, I think you bring up in the book, if I remember right, even mentally challenged or unstable people, just the things that they may believe in. And uh, we're, we're, what you're not saying, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that there, there isn't some moral uh, motivation on our part to, to help people see reality. You're sp strictly speaking about it from the perspective of the person who is either being honest or dishonest. That's correct. That's exactly right. Yep. So uh, truth does enter in here, but just not in the way we're talking about. So the content of what you're saying, whether that is true or false, doesn't map on to honesty or dishonesty. So you could say something false and still be honest. You could say something true and be dishonest. Um, where truth comes in on my account is, are you truthfully presenting your views to other people? Now there it matters, right? Are you accurately representing what you believe, even if it happens to be that the earth is flat? Or are you distorting the facts, misrepresenting your position to others? You're falsifying how your outlook on the world, in which case you're being dishonest. So that's where truth enters, on my view, is not the content, it's how you represent yourself to the others to, and to the world. Helpful. You know, I, I think everybody here values honesty and wants honesty, um, especially, I mean, Jason and Alex, you guys are pastors. Uh, I think the Bible tells us not to lie. But it doesn't give us all the, the rest answers. of you guys are fine with it though, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> just the pastors care about honesty. <laughs> that, that's right. Well, I'm just thinking, you know, you're teaching your congregation, hey, the scriptures tell us don't, don't lie. Um, but then you've got all, you know, you've got the, even the, the Nazis at the door type of cases in the scriptures where you've got, you know, the Hebrew midwives, et cetera, where it complicates the picture. So I think asking these sorts of questions. Uh, it's really helpful to think through what does it really mean to not lie and to actually be an honest person. Um, one thing, though, I've been thinking about, you know, I, the first time I read your Character Gap book, I remember you've got some empirical data on how much people actually are honest, how much they lie, how much they actually care that they lied after the fact. And I remember being 
a little taken aback, but at the same time, I wasn't. Uh, just how much people really lie. And I'm thinking, uh, Christian, do you have any ideas or thoughts on how can we get people to prize this virtue of honesty more? I mean, uh, do you have you know tips that you've seen as uh, across your studies that say? Uh, this helps people see the value of really being honest in all their situations, uh, things like that. Yeah, that's that's a big big question. Um, so let me preface it first with a empirical remark about how honest people actually are, and then offer a couple of quick suggestions. Although I, it's going to be you know, there's a lot more to say. Uh, so on my view, honesty is rare in society. Uh, most people are not honest. And I derive this view from looking at the results of empirical psychology. So uh, uh, dozens and dozens of studies have put people into different situations where they have an opportunity to lie or to cheat or to steal. And we see what they end up doing. And it doesn't, to my mind, demonstrate a pattern of behavior that you would expect of an honest person. Uh, So I think there's good empirical grounds on that front to say lack of honesty. I think it's also a separate discussion could be had on theological grounds, whether uh, the doctrine of original sin, for example, would lead you to think that virtues are rare and in particular honesty. Uh, I also don't, though, believe that most people are dishonest. So I hold a view according to which most people are a mixed bag, where we have some good sides to our character and some bad sides to our character. So with respect to this topic, we have some aspects of our character which lead us to tell the truth some aspects of our character which lead us away from telling the truth, to lie or mislead uh, others. So I think we're in a mixed bag. That's still, though, your question applies, because even if we're not dishonest, we're still falling short of honesty, and there's a gap. There's a gap between how most of us actually are and the kind of character we should have. And how can we bridge that gap? Well, there's a question of practical steps we can take, and there's also a question of just being motivated to do it in the first place. So it, I could give you a whole bunch of practical steps, but if you don't care about it, you know, you're not moved, it's, they're going to go nowhere. On the flip side, you can be really inspired and motivated, but have no clue about what to do next and to, uh, concrete uh, behavior or actions to take in order to bridge that gap. So I think both of those are really important when we think about character improvement, in this case, uh, honesty improvement. So uh, what what quick things could I say in a concrete way? Um, let me point uh, t- to two things that I'll, and then maybe more if we have time. So one is the role of, of role models, and the other is the importance of moral reminders. So first, role models. Um, this is something that's very friendly to the Christian tradition, but also has a lot of empirical backing in psychology as well, that um, we are often inspired by people who are better than us. And in this case, it would be who are more honest than us. So if we learn about their lives and we see the beauty of and the the moral excellence of their character, that can lead us to admire their character, but also in turn to want to emulate it. What psychologists would say, feelings of elevation, to make my character reflect that person's character more as opposed to dragging that person's character down to my level. Examples you could include, of course, Jesus would be a a great example in this context. Uh, 
In the American context, Abraham Lincoln is an inspire, inspiring figure when it comes to honesty. It could be a fictional example that have to be a real person. It could, but maybe uh, it's also important to highlight that it could be a friend or family member, a leader in in a in the community, um, who these kind of cases often have great psychological impact because they're close to us, they're psychologically salient, and they're relatable. We can we can connect with them and relate to them in ways in which distant historical figures sometimes are harder to relate to. So that's one idea just to put on the table. Um, the importance of exemplars, moral saints, moral heroes, moral role models. And then the other one, and I'll stop going on for so long, um, is the importance of moral reminders. So the idea here is that um, it's not that you're starting from scratch when it comes to honesty. We're a mixed bag, but we do have some good pieces in place. Most of us, for example, think it's important, believe at least, think, that's why I said think, um, believe it's important to tell the truth, to not cheat, to not steal, in most cases, at least. Um, but that that kind of belief gets pushed aside or neglected sometimes under the sway of self-interest. When we have an opportunity to, um, you know, for momentary sexual pleasure or momentary financial gain um, or momentary Im impression management, we can push aside what we know to be the right thing to get that immediate gratification or good. More reminders come along and they do this. They, they get our perspective back where it needs to be. They help us see um, that we really do care about being a certain kind of person and doing the right thing. And we need to keep that front and center in our mind. So what would be some examples? They could be you know, starting your day off with uh, reading the Bible or a devotional. Um, it could be ending your day by having a, um, a diary or something that you reflect back on your day. Uh, it could be throughout your day having ins inspirational messages through text messages, through email, on your wall. Uh, it could be um, even things like this. Uh, in the educational context, I'm a professor, uh, the honor code, um, signing the honor code before taking tests or writing papers. All those things are functioning as more reminders to make sure our perspective is where it needs to be. And there's empirical literature I can get into, if you like, backing this up as uh, something that makes a difference. Yeah, I would love to hear your just opinion as, a, as an educator. How do you, and particularly you being an educator in a context where you probably have all sorts of students on different religious backgrounds, ideological backgrounds, et cetera. How do you um, just like appeal to your students? Or how would you appeal to your students about the value of honesty in a way that doesn't merely come off as um, do it because like we were talking about earlier, just purely self-centered reasons. So like, how do you approach yeah, appealing to all different kinds of people about the value of honesty? Yeah, that's that's a tough tough question. Um, the first thing that be is to be honest that I don't do it enough or don't do it very well. Um, so frankly, let me, let me be frank about that. Um, there, I guess there would say there are two things that come to mind that mirror just the last thing I said. Um, first is I try to display it in my own life. Uh, if I'm not being honest myself, then you know, who am I to try and inspire it in my students? 
Um, so I, be I better be working on my own life and have my life try to display that visibly to um, give students a kind of tangible example to refer to. Now, of course, I don't do a great job and I, I slip up in various ways, but um, I think it's this generalizes for all professors. Um, character in the educational environment has to start with the educators and not the students. Probably start, this applies to pastors too, I would bet as well. It's got to be starting with the pastor and not the 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 people in the in the uh, in the in the pews. Um, and then the second thing is, I'm fortunately it's not up to me entirely because I'm embedded in a culture which values honesty. So we haven't talked at all about social dimensions or cultural dimensions, but um, at Wake Forest University, this is one of our central values, which is in, kind of ingrained through many years in the in the kind of culture of the university at large. So from the very beginning of orientation week for freshmen, uh, they are getting this message of we care about honesty and integrity in our students. They get that at the uh, on the second day of pre-orientation. Pre um, and then it just carries through over the course of the four years. So I can just, I don't have to start from scratch. I can just reaffirm to them what our university cares about. Just like in a church context, I'm sure this maps on too. Um, and one way we do that very tangibly is by, before taking a test, they have to sign their university's honor code. But I take it one step further. I actually get up there in front of the class and we all verbally recite it together as a class. So I'm visibly telling them I'm buying into this as well with them. It's not me imposing it on them. I'm buying into this. Well, I'm going to uphold these standards too. And you are making a public um, affirmation of this in front of all your peers, in front of me as me too, that this is a standard that you're going to hold yourself to in the next hour during this test. Um, so there's the moral reminder. There's the first the role modeling in me and in the community. And then secondly, the moral reminder comes along with the honor code that they have to sign. And in my case, verbally recite as well. That's good. Alex and Jason, I've got a question for you two based upon how we've defined honesty and talked through it. Um, I know there's a lot of more questions I'd like to ask you too, Christian, but we're running out of time. So Alex, Jason, I, I want to think when it comes to uh, the pastoral office, and when it comes to being honest as a pastor, I feel like there's probably, I mean, there's, I guess, a couple of aspects that you want to think about honesty as, as far as a pastor. Honest in your, you know, interpersonal relationships with, with your parishioners or your members, um, and honesty from the pulpit. W what does it look like as far as honesty from the pulpit? Do you think, based upon this definition of honesty, you can be honest um, in contexts where, let's say, we're, we're using other people's material, if I don't reference them or if I use other people's illustrations, et cetera, like that, just in general, I'm, not, I'm trying not to use a specific example, just in general, as a general practice, if you are doing this on a regular basis, can you still be considered honest as a pastor? Or, or does this count as dishonesty, do you think, and does it have detrimental social impact for you as a pastor? I mean, can you value honesty and, and and do sorts of things like that? Where I guess, because I think Christian, I mean, in your context, plagiarism is wrong. 
I don't know if if maybe somebody would want to say the argument of well, there's a different context when when you're a pastor, therefore there's different rules at play when it comes to being honest. I don't think we'd want to say that because I think you'd want to say you want to be honest in that scenario too. So what do you guys think? I, I don't know who wants to go first. Alex, you, you go. go Alex. Alex. Uh, J- Jason's pointing at me uh, on the on the screen here. Uh, uh, my moral framework, like that of probably everybody on this call, is is built primarily, um, well, it built exclusively on the Bible, um, and uh, and the revealed will of God. So uh, I I view this as uncontroversial. Plagiarism is wrong, and what. What makes it wrong in my mind, uh, one of the main things that makes it wrong is you are uh, deliberately taking the work of another, whether it's expounding a passage or, or bringing together other research into the presentation of a sermon or whatever the case may be, you're taking someone else's work and you're presenting it as your own. Uh, according to your congregation's assumptions. I mean, your congregation assumes, I imagine, I mean, mine certainly does, that I studied the passage, that I uh, am qualified according to the Bible, First Timothy 3, Titus 1, that I'm seeking, like, you know, Paul says to Timothy to be uh, a man approved, um, uh, an example in speech and conduct, uh, one who knows how to rightly divide the word of truth, that I am seeking to do that labor myself and to manifest that in the sermons that I preach, to feed the flock of God. And so to mislead them into thinking the thoughts that I'm conveying in my sermons or in my classes are original to me when actually they are not, they're the product of the work of another. I I don't view this as in the least bit controversial. I think it's sinful in the eyes of God. I think it's a reflection of dishonesty in the way that Christian has characterized it. And... Um, uh, I, I I don't find it a morally complex scenario. I find it a very straightforward one. It's a form, to use the Bible's categories, it would be a form of bearing false witness. Um, even if you don't say at the start of your sermon, these thoughts are original to me, the clear assumption in the room in most contexts is going to be you are telling us something that, that you have developed in your own mind and your own prayers and reflections upon the text. And since that assumption or that implied assumption is present, uh, it would be a form of bearing false witness, in my opinion. Cool. Jason? Yeah, I can't say it any better than uh, Alex, to whom I give full credit for uh, agreeing with him. Um, Yeah, no, I I think that's exactly right. I don't think that there's any leeway in that regard. Um, I think that, you know, we, we do have a category of no thought may be original to us. So, it's not like you can footnote every thought that you have and write down. Perhaps you got that from somewhere else. Um, we all have, you know, mentors and, you know, pastors that maybe we like to listen to. And so I think to to Christian's point in his book, sometimes there's an unwitting, um, uh, you know, in this case, uh, you know, ascription a, a uh, or non-ascription to someone who it should be ascribed to, but you know, this awareness, of course, um, is, and, and it's a completely different category than even if I do at the beginning say, this is someone else's sermon. I think there's a whole other conversation to have about just even the lack of effort, if you will. But yeah, it's it's unequivocally dishonest in my book and disqualifying as well. So I guess, I mean, Christian, I, I feel like your definition kind of helps 
somewhat in this scenario because I've heard uh, plagiarism in the pulpit's been a hot topic. And I'm thinking, you know, people are like, well, what if I forgot to uh, properly ascribe or I accidentally did something? I think your definition helps with that. So it's reliably, intentionally distorting the facts. So I think there is leeway, at least in my opinion, you know, know, I've preached before. uh, I used to preach more regularly than I do now. And I'm sure there are times where I've forgotten to attribute uh, credit where credit is due or, or, you know, I've, I've said something that was actually something, it just came into my mind at the moment, but it was actually sourced from somewhere else and I didn't give credit. I don't think that's the intention here when we're talking about honesty versus dishonesty. dishonesty. It's intentionally taking somebody's material knowingly and reliably doing that on a repetitive basis and presenting it as my own material. I think that would be count as dishonest and something that would be a vice in some sorts. Now, I guess there is some aspect of that's dishonesty as a pastor or a preacher. Maybe you're honest in all sorts of other areas of your life, but you're not honest there. But it seems to me it gets really complicated and complex to really disentangle how much that bleeds into other areas of your life. It seems that if you're dishonest in one area a lot significantly, that's concerning to me. It may not be indicative of other areas of your life, but it seems just that's not a good sign. That's a red flag, in my opinion, as far as just thinking through character and, and virtues and vices. I don't know if anybody has any other closing uh, thoughts can, on can that. Can I just add something yeah. on that, Jordan? I think, now this gets beyond the scope of our what our dialogue has been about thus far, but since you brought up the plagiarism issue, co- context to me is very significant. Uh, so if I tell... My son, I have, I have three kids. My oldest is three. And uh, if I'm telling him a series of old wives' tales or old myths or legends before bed, he might think they're coming out of my mind or whatever. He might think that I, I'm, I'm making these up on the spot, but really I've read them in a book somewhere or if I've heard them from my parents or whatever. Uh, he's not expecting attribution. I don't think his trust would be compromised if he finds out you know, five years from now that those stories weren't original to dad, that he actually got them from somewhere else or a book he read or stories someone else told him or something like that. But to think again of of another context, and this this goes to the plagiarism thing, particularly in the context of like a local church and a pastor in his relationship with his people, uh, the analogy that, that, that I've heard used, and I don't know where, so I can't attribute it, is, um, the, the idea of, um, a love letter written from a husband to a wife. There's a certain expectation there that that you know if, if I write a love letter to my wife, it, this is the expression of his heart and his unique and original, maybe spontaneous expressions of affection for me. Well, if my wife discovered after reading a seven-page love letter that I wrote to her that I just took another husband's words given to his wife and then presented them to her. Um, there's a context of relationship that makes that particularly egregious and and um, particularly uh, significant in eroding trust between the two of us because of what is what the expectations of the relationship are. I think that's helpful in thinking about pastors and their sermons as they preach to people. There's an ancient promise in Jeremiah 3:15 that 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 one of the things God would do in the new covenant, is that he would give to his people shepherds who would not be like the shepherds of Israel. 
uh, who who fleece the sheep. And, and literally, I mean, the language of dishonesty is used in how they treated the flock of Israel. And they used the sheep for their own gain, and they abused them, and they ate the fat of the sheep. In, in Jeremiah 3.15, the Lord says, I'm going to give them shepherds who will feed them on knowledge and understanding. And that language of a shepherd and a sheep, there's just a sacred trust that's there. And um, I think that's what's at risk with sermon plagiarism, compromising a very sacred and very tender relationship that needs to be safeguarded and needs to be nurtured and needs to be cherished. And that trust, especially in this day and age when trust is um, held cheaply and where leaders and those who should be held in trust, you know, a lot of public cases we can mention where there's been abuse and there's been deception and there's been heavy handedness and that sacred relationship has been compromised much to the spiritual hurt and trauma of the flock. There is such a need to do everything in our power as pastors to safeguard that relationship. The context of the relationship makes it especially significant in, um, in how we how we convey our ideas and our thoughts and our, our unique communications to the flock. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Yeah, that's good. Can I, can I quote real quickly from Christian's book, something that I think speaks to this and, and leads to another question, perhaps Christian, for you to answer as well, if I could. Um, you say, stably over time, the honest lawyer does not intentionally distort the facts in the courtroom. But if she is an honest person and not just an honest lawyer, then she typically ref- refrains from distorting the facts at home, at the gym, at the store, and so forth. Clearly, someone who refrains from intentionally distorting the facts just once or twice out of hundreds of opportunities does not qualify as honest. At the same time, honesty comes in degrees, and a person does not have to be perfectly reliable in order to count as honest. And the question that comes to mind as I was reading your book, and even based on what Alex just said was, you know, Christianity is a, is a religion, if you will, that is a religion of forgiveness. And, um, you know, I just made a pretty strong statement earlier that it's disqualifying, I think, for a pastor to um, be dishonest from the pulpit, but, but certainly anybody in a, um, in a status as a leader is going to fail at some point. And so could you speak to a little bit of this idea, as you put it here, perfect reliability? And again, I realize that there is a, there's a gray area here or, or somewhat having to do with personalities and things like that. But can you speak just for a moment to that, that idea of uh, trustworthiness as it relates to honesty and where that, breaks down or is rebuilt or something along those lines. Yeah, that that's probably a great note to end on. Um, so perfect honesty is unattainable for mere humans in this life. Uh, it was attainable for Jesus. It was no mere human. Uh, and it may be attainable for us in the next life after the process of sanctification is completed. Um, but it, none of us is going to be perfectly honest despite our best efforts and even the internal working of the Holy Spirit in this life, I think is, is still not going to get us there. Uh, so th- given that, um, what do we say? Do we want to say that therefore no one is honest at all, or do we want to allow that honesty comes in degrees? This is an active debate at the, at the philosophical level. Um, they, someone like Aristotle would say that it comes in degrees. 
certain Stoic philosophers would say it's all or nothing. Either it's perfect honesty or you're not honest at all and you're vicious. You have a vice. Uh, I want to say that, to go with the Aristotle here, uh, I want to say that, uh, that honesty and all virtues come in degrees. And so that means that there will be cases where we could say someone is honest, like Abraham Lincoln, and yet he slips up from time to time. He still tells a lie that's unjustified. Uh, he cheats in some way. Given that, um, what do we say next? Well, we want to know more about the particular case of the individual. How egregious was the dishonesty? Um, is it indicative of a larger, deeper problem, uh, more systematic? But uh, surely th th that forgiveness comes into the picture at this point. Uh, if, well, if the conditions for forgiveness are met, um, by that I mean, you know, if, uh, well, I don't want to get into a whole big discussion of forgiveness now, but um, at least we, we, we enter into the realm of atonement. We enter into discussions of things like um, apology, repentance, reparation, penance. Uh, we, we talk about whether uh, the wrongdoing can be atoned for in those ways. And normally we say if there is effort made to atone through those four things I, I outlined, um, then the person is meritorious of forgiveness, um, worthy of forgiveness. Uh, and I, I think we, we can't forget that. Um, we can't be legalistic and too heavy-handed uh, and just condemn someone as not honest at all or not worthy of our trust based upon one wrongdoing, depending on what it is. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. And well, obviously, I feel like we could probably go on for another hour discussing uh, practical applications of honesty, uh, different scenarios, et cetera. I mean, there's so much to do with this topic. So what I'll tell you, you listeners, uh, I'm sure you guys would love that, and I would love it too. Um, but I'm, I'm just going to sell you on the book one more time. Go ahead and find Christian Miller's book on honesty. Uh, you can go to Amazon, wherever. I'll put it in the link or I guess in the notes uh, to this show, you can click on the link, go there, buy it. I think it will stir up some good discussions. And maybe this is a great book to have a book club at your church. You know, uh, honesty, I, I think, as we've mentioned, is being eroded in all sorts of contexts, whether it's our public context, our neighborhood context, our local church context, all, all across uh, the our country. Honesty is having issues. We have issues with trust. And so maybe this is a start of how can we think about honesty well? How can we become honest people? How can we build trust? And maybe this is a great resource uh, to use for a context like that. So I commend it. I mean, Christian, I'll tell you, there's a lot of people that I have met in my life and that are really smart and think about ethics and stuff. But I think Christian's one of those people who you can just, you can feel the character in him where he really definitely cares about it. He loves it. You're not, I'm not going to say you're perfectly, you know, honest or perfectly virtuous in any sense, but I think you genuinely want to be that way. And I can feel it from our conversations and the relationship that we had that you, you really deeply actually desire the things that you're writing about. So I think, you know, supporting authors like that is, is a great thing to do. So I commend his work, commend that. And obviously I commend the rest of these guys on the podcast. I mean, you can follow them and follow their work, Alex and Jason, um, and I guess, Jake, I mean, you, you've been preaching still regularly, but you're, you're now a member of, uh, of a local church, uh, which I'm excited about for you and doing studies at, at Southern. So follow all these guys. I, I think they all have something useful to, to bring to the table to help uh, rebuild 
uh, our loss of honesty and the neglect that we have there. So everybody's been tuning in. Uh, I really thank you for listening in. Hopefully this was helpful, stirred some ideas, thoughts, discussions, and helped give you some clarity and maybe some motivation to become more honest. All right. Uh, This has been the only analytic uh, Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we thank you for tuning in. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.